C4 became involved with Partners International's Adopt-A-Village program in 2011. Um, in 2015 is when the team visited uh, from C4. Can you tell us just a little bit more? I mean, we heard somewhat, but what is it like for those couples um, when they decide to become a part of Adopt-A-Village? Okay, Christianity is still their kind of Western religion, so sometimes we really struggle to make them understand, you know, what is our faith because what they see from the West, you know, they think this is kind of a culture, so we really struggle. And now, since the Islamic, you know, extremism is on the rise, so we really uh, struggle with the security issue. So previously, during the last 200 years, when the missionaries came, the Christianity was, you know, in a, based on a mission compound. We were very much you know, isolated from the community. So now, we are very, in a different way, we are... Uh, people are trying to attack us, sometimes, you know, orally, sometimes physically. So that's why we try to uh, take this church uh, to be integrated with a community. So that's the approach. We are now preparing couples. We are, you know, training them with uh, biblical knowledge. At the same time, all kinds of, you know, practical ministry kind of, you know, techniques and the skills so that they can go and live with the community and people see the church is a part of their community. So that's what we are trying to do with these couples. Now we have 18 couples, uh, 12 from the Hindu background and six uh, from the Muslim background. So we trained them from our training center and now they are initiating ministry in the, in, in the community, within the community. And people now see the Christians are part of the community, no more uh, isolated from the community. That's what we are trying to do. So it sounds a little bit like um, a, a movement that is happening called Move In around here, if you're familiar, of um, regular Christians moving in to uh, a poor, unreached community uh, to minister just by living life with them. Uh, so Bangladesh is 99% uh, unreached. Can you share a little bit more about what, what is the challenge of ministering in a country like Bangladesh? Uh, Bangladesh is, is uh, a highly populated country. Uh, it's like compared to other countries, even the neighboring countries. Like in, in, in Canada, per square kilometer is like 3.4 people. Uh, even in China, it's like 160 people per square kilometer. In India, is like 350 people. Uh, Bangladesh is like 1,300 people per square kilometer. So population density is very high. But we see this as an opportunity, like harvest is plentiful in front of us. So this is really wonderful opportunity for us uh, to initiate something and uh, we are trying to do more and more uh, because we have people around us and more than 90% people are Muslim and Christianity is like uh, less than 1%, like 0.4%. We call us the microscopic minority. It's a very small number of people there. So, but still we are trying to do, uh, we are trying to impact in the society and uh, people are, are really responding to the gospel. And so some of the challenges that you face, um, as you mentioned, this hatred towards Christians, a lack of understanding of what it even means for someone to be a Christian, um, the, so the persecution uh, from the Islamic extremists. Um, what, what else in Bangladesh is a great challenge? When the missionaries came first, the, the mainly their focus was the Hindu and the tribal people. 
So that's why, they, I mean, the common people, I mean, the general people, you know, situation was not that bad because Muslims were not, you know, were not actually, you know, focused. But now the Muslims are also responding and uh, we are also trying to reach out and many uh, churches were planted among the Muslims. So they took it as kind of disturbance. So you can understand, you know, when we disturb them, so there will be uh, some reaction. So we are now experiencing that kind of reaction from the Muslims. So persecution is growing even during the last, you know, 10 years, last 10 years, we have experienced nine martyrdom in our country. So killing, beating, land grabbing, these are uh, kind of common uh, issues now in Bangladesh. So it's growing, but still in the midst of that kind of hardship, church is also growing. I can tell you at this moment, we are really experiencing a kind of unity among the churches. All the evangelicals, the ecumenicals, even the Roman Catholics, we come together and pray together because of this kind of situation. So this is really wonderful. Yes, it is wonderful that in time of persecution, God would unite the church. How incredible. Thank you for that. Um, we have an opportunity to send a team representing C4 to go and visit the villages that we are adopting in March. If you're interested in possibly going and experiencing, seeing firsthand how God is at work, you can apply. Just take a look at the compassion section of the C4 Church website. Also, there's a monthly meeting that happens. A team meets together to pray for uh, Lior and the adoptability pastors, and if you're interested in being involved in that, you can sign up online as well. Uh, Lior, would you pray for us? We would love um, to have your blessing uh, over C4. Sure. Our loving God, I thank you for this wonderful time of fellowship with these uh, wonderful people, the C4 Church. Lord, I thank you for the vision you have given them to reach out uh, many in this city and also beyond that in all over the world, Lord. Thank you for this uh, vision and, uh, and, the, and the vision you have put in, in their hearts, Lord. I, I especially pray for this church and the leadership and, uh, and the congregation, Lord, the, all the believers and their family, for their children, Lord. Bless them. Bless them. Be with them. Lead them through your direction. Holy Spirit, be with them. Guide them and help them so that they can be instrumental to bless many others all over the world, Lord. Thank you for, for everything what you have done through this church. In Jesus' name I ask. Yes, Amen. thank you, Heavenly Father, for all that you have done. Also for, through Lior Sarkar, through the Bangladesh Baptist Church Fellowship, through their outreach with this Adoptive Village program, we pray now for every couple, these 18 couples who are involved in that program as they are sent ones. They are sent out into a community where they are hated and where they are persecuted, and we pray for protection, and we pray for boldness. We thank you, Lord God, that out of persecution, you are glorified, and the churches have become united. We thank you for that. We pray for the BBCF and this, um, the reality that many people uh, Christians are first-generation Christians. So now we ask, Lord, that the second generation would grow up knowing you, glorifying you, and serving you. We pray for the BBCF as they work hard to reach out to the second generation. And we ask, Lord, that you would do a mighty work in this country. We ask, Father, that you would help C4 to know now <laughs> how to pray would you lay it on our hearts to regularly lift up our partners in Bangladesh as we've heard these great challenges, but 
there is no rival against you, no enemy against you. You have a name that is all-powerful, and we are thankful to be a part of your kingdom work. So God, we uh, pray also today for the churches that are meeting in our area. Specifically, we pray for Calvary Baptist Church. We thank you that they are having this global missions conference uh, right now. We ask that you would use it and uh, encourage many people to hear your call to be sent and that they would uh, motivate people just like we ask for here. Would you motivate us to be missional? Uh, in our lives. So God, we thank you for the message that you have given to Pastor John this morning, and we ask that you would use his words to challenge us, to inspire us. Would your spirit work amongst us and help us to know how you're at work, and let us see you, God. We invite you to show up and show off. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for who you are. In your powerful name, I pray these things. glad that you're here this morning. want to say good morning to all of you watching and listening online uh, up in Port Perry. So glad that you're here this morning. And I just want to take a moment. We just heard from Lior and what God is doing in Bangladesh and also wanted to share with you as we get going that we ended up baptizing 14 people last week. And so can we just thank God for what he's doing? Uh, in our church and around the world. It's just, it's really totally amazing. I'd like to welcome you to week four in our series called The Sent Ones. So far, Paul has been so very encouraging as he's been writing to this uh, church in an ancient city called Corinth. He was showing them and pointing them and painting this grand picture of what God had done, was doing, was going to do, and was doing through them. But very quickly, as we began to discover and read, he started talking about next steps. He, he basically was saying this, for all of us who have the Holy Spirit, uh, we now must see the Holy Spirit take a greater grip, a grander influence across every single section and area of our life. Paul's so aware that this church in Corinth is about to collapse because they're about to be no different than the city they live in, and also knowing that they're about to implode because of internal strife, he comes back a third time to one issue. He comes back to the issue of Christian unity. Now, I want to stop before I get going today and say this, and I don't know why I'm about to declare this, but I want to say it because I think it's important. I don't know what uh, the impact of this message is going to be, but all week I have had this unbelievable growing sense, not angst, sense, that this message was going to be one of the most important messages I preach all year. Now, I, I'm not saying it by personality or style, I just, there's something about this that Jesus really wants to communicate to us as a family. So I'm going to ask everyone to really lean in and listen and think and be open to what the Spirit wants to do. Can we all agree on that together? Yes to that? Okay. So Paul, for a third time, addresses the issue of Christian unity. 
And basically what he's saying is this. So you say you're good with Jesus. You say you're so spiritual because of all the amazing things you're now doing through your spiritual gifts. He says, I'm not denying it. You speak in tongues and it's translating and you're prophesying and actually some of you are literally healing the sick and others are actually casting out demons and some of you become great teachers of theology and all sorts of you are giving all sorts of your lives and your money to the poor and yet while all those amazing things are happening, you're still divided at the same time with other Christians. And your division mocks the cross, and your division mocks Jesus' heart, and your division actually grieves the spirit whom you say you know so well. This week I was hanging out with my oldest daughter who is almost 10 and she's becoming independent, and I was asking to see her homework, and she's like, you don't need to see my homework. I'm like, yes I do. No, you don't. Yes, I do. No, no, you don't. Now, she wasn't doing it because she was hiding anything. She was doing it because she was self-confident. She says, I've done my work. I've done my homework. I'm a good student, and I know it's good. When I finally was able to get the homework, it was okay. It wasn't fantastic. It wasn't terrible. Now, here's what was going on. In her mind, she had done exceptionally well, but when you looked at the facts, it was only okay because she had missed some spelling and some math. So here's the point. What Paul is saying is you are acting like a child in the church because you are overly self-confident and what you think is happening on paper actually isn't. So this is why he says this in 1 Corinthians 3, verse 1. Brothers and sisters, I could not address you as people who live by the Spirit, but as people who are still worldly, mere children, infants, babies in Christ. Now, don't misread this. Maybe you grew up in a church that actually didn't preach this very well. We know from chapter 1 and chapter 2, these people are real Christians. They are saved. He, we found it in week one. They're called saints. They, they are called by God the Father. They have understood the foolishness of the cross. They have already been given the Holy Spirit. And they are using spiritual gifts that actually have their inception point by the Holy Spirit. But now four years later, Paul finds out that they're not letting the Holy Spirit actually transform them. The progress, their standing is not what they actually think it is. It is like Paul was saying, so with all your positions in life and your jobs and your unbelievable ability and all your PhDs and with all your spiritual gifts, you're still acting like the culture around you. You're still celebrity obsessed, you're self-promoting and you're self-justifying. Look, he says, here's the problem I need to address. You think you're so old in the faith because you can prophesy and you speak in tongues and you give so much to the poor and you're physically healing people, but you still are, from heaven's view, just little babies in Jesus. You think that you're like, 65 and wise and respected, but actually you're like a six-month-old who can't even clean himself. I remember the very first time that I was in the hospital, and suddenly something called a child entered my life. Now, I remember that I'm an only child and an only grandchild, so babies were not my thing. I was terrified to hold babies because I never grew up around them. When I became a pastor, the thing that gave me most anxiety was baby dedications because I was afraid I was going to drop the baby and there would be a YouTube moment for the rest of my life that would follow me. You're laughing. I had anxiety for real. My wife obviously had C-sections. I've shared that before. And so the very first time we had our first child, my lovely Hannah, I remember sitting there. It was 3 o'clock in the morning. I had never changed a baby in my life. She is resting because she had this large gash that was getting repaired. And I'm sitting in there. The nurse said, so you're going to change your daughter, right? And I panicked. I was like, 
what? what? What do you, and she's like, this is what you now do. And I'm like, oh, right, exactly. This is what I now do. And so at this moment, I was like, oh my goodness, I don't know how to do this. And I had to learn on the spot how to change my da- daughter. And my daughter was completely helpless. And actually my wife was recovering and I'm thrust into this. See, here's the illustration I want to get. See, so many Christians in Corinth thought that they were the nurse who knew how to do everything. But actually Paul says, you're the baby who keeps pooping himself and or per- herself and can't even clean themselves from heaven's view you think you're so in charge and so healthy but actually you are sitting in filth now remember what I shared week one it's so important remember in week one I outlined every single issue that he addresses in the Corinthian church First of all, we found out that people are sleeping with relatives in the church. There's incest. That's a problem. Then others were sleeping with prostitutes thinking that was just okay. And it's not just that they were committing adultery or fornication and using young women. It was worse than that. These sex trade workers were connected to pagan temples. And so if you had sex with a prostitute, actually you're worshiping a pagan god. And regularly men from church were going and doing that and thinking Jesus was fine with it. And then there was the verbal gang warfare between different groups in the church. And then there were others who were connecting uh, with demons as Christians. Others are misusing the spiritual gifts to puff themselves up, abuse others. They're just downright too self-confident. Others are suing each other in open court. Others are denying the resurrection. Others are arguing with each other about how much food you can use and give to idols. Others turn the act of communion into a classism battle where the rich ate first and the poor got no food at all. Immaturity was everywhere. So uh, it's like, horrific and then the leadership is not turning on itself but the people are turning leaders on each other because they like certain leaders over others and so what marks this church the literal core values of the church through their life is strife abuse discord factions lawsuits sexual immorality and chaos and Paul comes along and says okay I know that you're Christians, no doubt about it. Oh, I know that you're people possessed and marked by the Holy Spirit. I don't argue about that. And actually, I know that you're using spiritual gifts. I don't deny that. But honestly, the Holy Spirit has so little influence in your life because this is all the stuff I'm hearing about. Simply put, you look more like Corinth than you do like the place you're trying to go. Simply put, you've actually stopped doing pilgrimage towards heaven and you've settled down and you've bought a house down here. Simply put, you're no longer taking ground as a pioneer. The city of Corinth has pioneered you and taken you over. Now Paul makes a statement in verse 2 and it's a historical reference to four years earlier. He says, I gave you milk, not solid food. For you weren't even ready for it. Indeed, you're still not ready for it. Now for milk, Paul is the basics of the faith and, and salvation and even spiritual gifts. But solid food is how it under, the understanding of how it works out and then doing it. That is why Paul is saying, okay, I know that you're holy because of Jesus' work. I know that you're saints. I know that you're positionally made right with God the Father right now, and yet you still have to work it out down here in marriage and relationships and money, sex, faith, enemies, and friends. How is your holiness up there working out down here? To those who are holy, be holy. The evidence of things being right is a growing life change under God's word and God's spirit. Imagine if you got tickets to go to the next Summer Olympics. And you went to go see some of the heats, the fast races that take place, the 100, the 200, the 500, whatever they are. And you're actually having a front row seat, right? And so all the men line up and they've got the spandex and you see way too much. You know what I'm talking about, right? And they're in in the blocks. And you're there and you're there cheering for Canada and everyone's getting ready. And the gun goes off. And when it goes off, you know these incredibly strong sprinters, right? They leave the block and they start running, 
At that moment, one of the runners crosses over the starting line and then stops and starts running around like he's won the race. He grabs a flag, starts running around, starts doing the Usain Bolt thing. Everyone else is like, what is going on? The runners are still going. And this guy is celebrating because he started the race by crossing the starting line. And he's celebrating like he's won the gold Olympic medal by just crossing the starting line. Now, that would be the biggest epic fail in Olympic history. The largest embarrassment. And Paul says... You're acting like you actually just won the gold medal supernaturally, but you've just started the cross, you just literally crossed the starting line, and you're running around with your flag thinking it's so incredible, and actually you haven't even taken like 10 steps. He says, let me just break this down to you. Verse 3, you are still worldly. By the way, I'm not saying that to us here. I'm just saying this is what he says to them. For since there is jealousy and quarreling among you, are you not still worldly? Are you still not acting like mere humans, people without the spirit? I can't tell the difference between you and everyone else in Corinth. I actually can't tell the difference between everyone else and you who live in Toronto. Why are you acting like everyone else who doesn't have the Holy Spirit? Why are you acting like those who have not been called by God the Father? Why are you still acting like everyone who has not embraced the work of the cross? Why are you getting your back up, by the way, while I'm writing this and starting to yell at me as a leader and say, no, no, no? What, look, just look at your relationships in the church. One thing that marks you as an ancient church is quarreling. And the fuel for your fighting is jealousy. Envy, coveting, what other people have, lack of mercy, malice, spitefulness. Now the Bible, time and time again, calls this out and shows the danger of disunity. It was Jesus uh, as he influenced Peter and Peter later who wrote these words to another group of churches in 1 Peter 4.8. He says, above all else, love each other deeply because love covers over a multitude of sins. Proverbs 10.12 says, hatred stirs up dissension, but love covers all wrongs. Oh yes, let me say this a third time, Paul says, I know you've been called by God the Father. Yet you elected before the beginning of time. No argument. Oh, yes, you've understood the work of the cross, and Corinth hasn't. Oh, yes, you actually have the literal mind of Christ. The Holy Spirit possesses you. Oh, yes, you have spiritual gifts, and you're using them in ways that tons of other churches aren't even courageous enough to use, and yet you still act like your neighbor that doesn't even know Jesus. Living like a worldly Christian is not even a permitted reality, Paul is saying. It's an oxymoron. It's like saying fried ice, cheerful pessimist, alone together, falsely true, true lies. It's not true. Paul has no, no, no time for the idea of real knowing and real encounter actually leading to right behavior. If it doesn't lead to right behavior, there's a breakdown. Paul's statements here aren't permissive. They're challenging. In other words, here's what Paul's saying. Remaining worldly as a Christian isn't even on the table. He's like, okay, I, I've already talked to you about this twice, but, but I need to come back to this again because this is actually threatening the cross and threatening the gospel among you and your witness in the city. He says, for when one says, verse 4, I follow Paul, and another says, well, I'm following Apollos. Are you not mere human beings? Paul, Apollos, Peter, James, Jesus, etc. all use the same Bible, all have the same message, but this is about personal allegiance. It's people saying, I like his style. I, I, I like his dress. I like his views. I, I like his age. I like the spiritual gift mix that God has given him. He says in verse 5, well, what after all is Apollos? And, and what is Paul? Only servants through whom you came to actually believe, as the Lord has assigned each his task. We're only slaves to Jesus, he says. 
We don't even own the house. We're only servants. God used Apollos and me, by the way, to help you believe and grow in the faith. That's true. And I remind you, by the way, that Jesus gave us the task anyways. It wasn't our choice. Our assignments are based on spiritual gifts, which the Holy Spirit chooses for us. We didn't even get to ask. He just said, you're getting these ones. And Paul says, oh, by the way, we don't own the house. We don't own the church. We don't have our own power. We don't have our own message. We don't even have our own spiritual gifts because they're only by the Spirit. We even don't own the Spirit. We actually don't have anything. We're actually here only by God alone. And you didn't believe on me, and you didn't get baptized in Apollo's name. You believed in and on Jesus, right? See, this is the great danger that every generation of Christians has faced for 2,000 years. It's the cult of the celebrity pastor. I follow Paul. I follow Peter. I follow Apollos. I like Augustine. I like Calvin. I like Luther. No, I like Wesley. No, I like Charles Stanley and his big Bible, right? No, no, I like Brian Houston. I like John MacArthur. I like Louis Giglio. No, no, I like Bill Johnson. No, no, I like Tim Keller. No, no, I like Judah Smith with the pants and the glasses and the hat. No, no, I like Carl Lentz. I like Ern McManus. No, no, I like Kevin DeYoung. See, do you see what's happening? No, I like Dave and not John. No, I like John and not Dave. I like Angela. I don't like Jervis. I like Jervis. I don't like Chris. I'm not sure about Joel. I like Matt. I love Lori. I don't like Lori. Well, hold on. I like their style. I like their preaching. I like their educational background. I like their patronage. I like their views. I like what they do. I like the spiritual gift mix emphasis God gave them. I like what they, I like their take on secondary issues. Hold on, everyone. Where is our focus again? See, Paul is not saying, by the way, he's not doing a good job. Paul is not even saying that he or others don't have authority to lead. And Paul is not saying that he's, he or Apollos or others aren't even gifted by the Spirit. But Paul is saying, stop putting us on pedestals. And by the way, side note, stop the drama. This is not like, you know, housewives of Corinth. Like, stop. Why are you trying to make us as leaders choose sides and turn on each other? We refuse to put into your game. I planted the seed, and Apollos watered it. Oh, but God made it grow. Now, this is critically important. And by the way, as I was writing this, I realized I had never taught this in all my years being in this church, especially in gifts and gift tension. I I don't want you to miss this this morning. The church in Corinth had actually seen the genuine differences between Paul and Apollos. Paul was a leader, evangelist, church, plant, church planter, teacher, in that order. Apollos was more of a teacher, shepherd. Now, they weren't at war with each other. They actually were in complete unity. There was no gift tension between them, nor a personality issue. But the church had invented a false fight between them. They had chosen one leader over another, one group of gifts over another. And Paul says, what? Hold on. That's actually the whole point. Jesus in heaven assigned us two different jobs for your common good. But certain people liked Paul and his gifts, others like Apollo and his gifts, one like one personality or style over the other. But Paul says, hold on. God actually designed it this way. And in the end, God's making it grow. Think about it. God's word, God's spirit, God's sovereign call, God's gift, God's salvation. God makes things grow. Talk to any farmer and they will tell you they can put thousands of hours in and prepare all they want. But at the end of the day, the weather has a massive say whether crops grow or they do not. Someone in Port Perry is going, yes. And, says, and, and Paul's saying, if you think the weather has control about growth, God has so much more to do with growth than us. I love when I was reading uh, some people this week and one person wrote it like this. You ought to have been focusing on the one who gives growth, but because you're actually hung up on the delivery method, you're still drinking milk. 
If you're starving for a drink of water, you should not get hung up on the receptacle you're drinking from. If a man is in a desert, he's not concerned about whether he's drinking from a glass or a bottle or out of a puddle in the sand. He is concerned to drink water, the source of life. Paul comes along and says, so, verse 7, so, so neither the one who plants nor the one who waters is anything, but only God who makes things grow is. God alone is the center. God alone is king. God alone is all-powerful. God alone saves. God alone is worshiped. God alone counts. Unity and diversity through spiritual gifts? Absolutely. Unity and diversity by personality? Absolutely. Unity and diversity through office and leadership roles? Absolutely. But at the end of the day, who counts? God alone counts. Someone please say amen. Like, God alone counts. The one who plants and the one who waters have only one purpose, and they will be rewarded according to their own labor. For we, he says, this is Paul, are co-workers in God's service, and you, that is the church, are God's field and God's building. We work with each other, and we work with and under God. And it's all his service anyway, and all of us, the church, we are the field and the building of God. And God owns everything. Paul says he owns me, he owns Apollos, he owns the church, he owns the world, he owns Corinth. Everything is owned in, by, and through Jesus Christ. And then Paul says, by the grace God, God gave me, and that inference is gift. I laid a foundation as a wise builder. I did. And someone else is now building on it. But each one should build with care. See, again, this is so critical. He says, okay, yeah, spiritual gift-based ministry at the core. By the grace given to me. It's where, it's where we get the word spiritual gift from. Yes, Paul's saying I actually have spiritual gifts like apostleship and leadership and evangelism and teaching. And I will tell you, and he says, not in pride and not in false humility, just this is the truth. I'm really good at what I do. I'm an expert. I'm a wise builder. I was a good architect, and I was an amazing on-site supervisor when I was with you. But then I left, and here's why I left. Because I had to do this again and again and again and again in other places. And when I left, God assigned another guy named Apollos to build on what I started building on. But the church at the end of the day isn't built on me or other leaders, or our styles, or our philosophy of ministry, or our strategies, but you keep as a church acting like it's based on which leader or what group of spiritual gifts you like the most. No, no, no. L let me make this abundantly clear. No one can lay any foundation other than the one that has already been laid, which is Jesus Christ. The foundation of this church, and the foundation of Calvary Baptist in Oshawa, and the foundation of Hebron Christian Reform in Whitby, and the foundation of People's Church in Toronto, and the foundation of St. Paul's on Bloor Street, Anglican, that foundation is the same foundation. Jesus Christ, his life, his teachings, his death, his resurrection, his spirit, his will, his world. His foundation unifies, his foundation stabilizes, his foundation is unshakable, it is unmovable, it is guaranteed, it is secure, he's the owner, he's everything. If you read all of 1 Corinthians, he already said this in 1 Corinthians 2.2, I was resolved to know nothing while I was with you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. Now Paul says, okay, by the way, there's more. It's not that you just keep devouring each other and taking each other to court and sleeping around and doing all this craziness. It's not that you just try actually turning leaders on each other that actually are together. There's actually something more going on here. I, I actually want to get to the real heart of the issue. N not just open wounds that you keep causing, not just the jealousy that is stronger than the Holy Spirit among you. I want to talk about that very deep place. I want to talk about the area called motives. And I want to talk to you about what's going to last and what's not going to last and why it matters. 
This week I was uh, in my kid's bathroom picking up towels for the one billionth time. I didn't know that uh, towel pickup was part of adulting, but now I know it is. Some of you are looking at your spouse right now like, yeah, you're the kid. Okay, all right. When I was cleaning it up, I also was then cleaning the tub because my daughters are now at an age where they like bath bombs. I didn't even know what these were. Do you know what I'm talking about from Lush? Do you know what Lush is? It's a scary, I thought it was like, like a really drug addicted store, but actually it's soap. Sorry. Anyway, it sounds like a bad place. And my girls who are now girly girls, they get these bombs. They look, they look like uh, Christmas ornaments to me. And they put them in the water and they explode and there's glitter and there's stars and there's neon colors and great. So I was cleaning up the remnants of a bath bomb. There were sparkles and stars and red. And I was picking up towels and I looked towards uh, the cabinet in our bathroom, in my kid's bathroom. Now, five years ago when we bought the house, the couple that had sold us the house did a DIY project in that bathroom to sell it. And when we bought it, it looked amazing. Five years later, three children, you know, vomit, pee, life, bath bombs, towels. I looked across at the cabinet and I was like, what, it was garbage. All the paint is peeling, and behind it, of course, it's not even real wood. It's particle board. And I was like, oh, it's just, it's a piece of garbage that we're going to have to replace. It looked so good on the outside when we bought it, but when reality came in, child A, B, and C suddenly exposed it for what it is. Paul comes along and says, do not go to the big box store and buy something that does not last supernaturally. You have to build on things that last forever. And he says, you want to understand what it's like? He says, look. If anyone builds on this foundation, who is that? Jesus. So we're all in, he's saying. Using gold, silver, and costly stones or wood or hay or straw, their work will be shown for what it is because the day will bring it all to light. It will be revealed with fire and the fire will test the quality of each person's work. Now, like I said a week or two ago, that phrase, the day, should stir emotions in us this morning, sitting here in Ajax, you sitting in Port Perry, anyone listening online, with genuine emotions of joy and terror. When Jesus comes back, because that phrase, the day for Paul, is Jesus' return. When Jesus physically comes back, there will be no hiding. There will be no bargaining. There will be no excuses. Every knee will bow. Every tongue confess Jesus is Lord. Here's how it's put in Matthew by Jesus himself in Matthew 12, 36. But I tell you that people will give an account on the day of judgment for every careless word they have ever spoken. Everyone just stop. Look at that verse. Do you believe that? Every careless word any of us in this place have uttered, Jesus is going to talk to us about it. Who's feeling uncomfortable this morning? Every careless word ever uttered in human history. Ecclesiastes 12, 14, God will bring every deed into judgment, including all hidden things, whether good or evil. Romans 2, 6, this will take place on the day when God will judge all men's secrets through Jesus Christ, as my gospel declares. So let this sink in this morning. When the sky split, when all sin is revealed, when the books are open, when all thoughts and motives are revealed, when every action of every person is put on the table, every government, every corporation, every family member, everything your enemy has done is brought to light. When every human being faces God and faces God alone in judgment. That's the day. Now remember what we heard all the way back in week one though that's so profound. When all of that happens, we as Christians are still covered. 
Because remember we found in 1 Corinthians 1.8, but God the Father will keep you firm to the end so you will be blameless on the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. That's incredible. When all of that exposure happens, when the nakedness of humanity happens, Jesus stands in the gap and will say, that person is still mine. Aren't you glad Jesus is gonna do that on that day for you? Yeah, absolutely. Unbelievable. You'll be blameless. I'll be blameless. Religion's not going to work on judgment day. Look how good I was. Are you joking? Every careless word? Please, Jesus, stand in the gap. And yet, our life and what we did for him is still going to be tested, though we're saved. If anyone builds on the foundation of Jesus using gold or costly silver or stones or wood or hay and straw. It is going to be tested. Verse 14, it says, if what has survived, built survives, the builder will have reward. All our actions are going to suffer loss. God's final judgment fire is the testing ground. Historians tell us this makes total sense to the original audience because goldsmiths and silversmiths used to take gold and would insert it into a kiln at massive degrees and actually all the impurities would burn out of the metal but the pure metal would survive. And this is what Paul is saying. We're gonna survive but everything that we've done for God will last and everything we haven't done for God will burn away. Gold, silver, and costly stones is what we do for Jesus out of genuine motive, out of worship. But everything else we use, even in the name of Jesus, that is actually from this world or for our own motives, will burn away and it will never return. Jesus talked about this in the Sermon on the Mount, the manifesto of our movement. Matthew 6, 1, be careful. Do not do your acts of righteousness before people to be seen by them. If you do, you'll have no reward from your Father in heaven. Notice Jesus says, not if, but when you practice your faith, when you serve, when you fast, when you use spiritual gifts, when you do this, if you do this for you, if you sing real loud so people look at you, if you're up on the worship team hoping that the crowd has elation towards you, if I'm preaching this sermon so I hope that you like me more, it will be burned. Jesus and Paul say, oh, you need to be involved in prayer and sacrificial giving and fasting and using spiritual gifts and helping the poor, etc. But why you do it is more important than what you do. If you do it for God, it ripples into eternity. If you don't do it for God, it will burn on the day of judgment, even as a Christian. Like I preached so many years ago, I now know without a shadow of a doubt that so many of my sermons will burn on judgment day. So many of my conversations that I've had with you will go up and smoke because they were motivated by fear or pride or making sure that you liked me enough as your pastor. So many of my theological views will be broken. So many acts that I did in the name of Jesus have mixed quality and they will suffer loss. We're not talking about salvation. We're talking about reward. Now, some of you are saying, well, what reward am I gonna get in heaven? I don't know, but here's what I do know the Bible says. That when we get to heaven and God evaluates us, he will give us honor. But the deeper thing that I now understand is this. When I see Jesus face to face, can you, like, mm, I want to give him everything. And all sorts of us will have nothing in our hand to give to the one we love. Because we did it for us. And we did it for the moment. We did it out of fear or we did it out of pride or we did it to look spiritual in front of other people or we fill in the blank. When you see Jesus, the one we give to and love and sing to and persecuted for and love and we've got nothing in our hands, there will be regret even as a Christian on that day. 
He says, if it is burned up, the builder will suffer loss. Yet they will be saved. Even though as one literally escaping through the flames, the image almost is like you touch hellfire, but you keep going, and everything that's with you is burned up. Another one says, you'll be pulled out of the rubble heap just in the nick of time. Don't you know that you yourselves are God's temple? God's spirit dwells in your midst. If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy that person for God's temple is sacred. You together are that temple. I've preached this so many times here, but let me do it again. You. You. We are the literal temple of God on earth. We replaced Moses' tabernacle. We, we replaced Solomon's temple. We replaced Nehemiah and Herod's temple. Remember, when Paul is writing 1 Corinthians, there is a great chance that the temple is still in function in Jerusalem. They're still sacrificing animals. The Jews still believe that is the meeting place between heaven and earth. And Paul, an Orthodox rabbi Jew, is saying that no longer has any account or authority. We now are that temple. The Spirit of God possesses us. The Spirit dwells in us. And as we teach here all the time at C4, gathered worship is a guaranteed place of meeting God. Why? When we celebrate celebrate big and we gather and think together small when we're together and connecting small it is a guaranteed place of encounter why where two or three Christians gather I am present we are the temple Paul says later in 1 Corinthians 6 19 we'll get there later but let me read it do you not know that your bodies are the temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you whom you've received from God you're not your own you've been bought at a high price honor God with your body It's that statement that comes later, that command and invitation and expectation that leads us to what Paul's trying to get at today. If you're a Christian, you don't own yourself. If you're a Christian, you honor God with your body, with your mind, your thinking, your your physical body. See, now we begin to see the amazing work of the Holy Spirit. He's the spirit of truth and he's the spirit of holiness and the Holy Spirit, the mind of Christ, allows us and helps us and moves us to do this honoring by relinquishing the things we love for a greater love. You'll never give up something if you don't love something more. Here's what Paul says. He's saying to this early ancient church of 2,000 years ago, we got a problem, kids. And it's not that the Holy Spirit isn't here and it's not that we haven't been called by God the Father. It isn't that we haven't understood the foolishness of the cross. It's not even that we're not even working out this racial thing together because we are, no, no, it's deeper than this. Number one, you keep thinking that leaders are the end ball game because Corinth tells you leadership is the deal. It's not. Our focus has to be on God first and leader second. Oh yeah, let me make this clear, and it gets into this next week, and we'll, we'll go there. Do we have to thank God for our leaders? Yes. Do we have to submit to leaders? Yes. That's a hard word in our culture, but yes, we do. Of course, we're going to be drawn to certain leaders over others. Of course, because of their emphasis or our agreement with them on secondary issues or their spiritual gift mix or I relate to them by culture or education. Yes, all of that, but in the middle of the ebb and pull towards one type of leader or a style of leader, never forget, never take your eyes off the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit never move from Jesus Christ our foundation yes leaders have roles given by God yes leaders uh, will lead but our, our loyalty our worship our love is to Jesus Christ alone and no one else and what's so incredible is what Paul is actually writing in this letter is this stop trying to break the unity of a local church by trying to pit leaders against each other 
in this church or any other church, God will not bless you if you do that. He will judge you. Never set up leaders against each other. Never break unity down here or up. Just don't do it. Just don't do it. The focus and the foundation of this church is Jesus Christ. We sing to Jesus, we give to Jesus, we listen for Jesus. It's his word, it's his spirit, it's his gifts, it's his salvation. Everything that C4 is about, everything that that church in Corinth had to be about was Jesus Christ and Jesus Christ alone. By faith alone and Jesus alone, by grace alone, this is everything that we're about. He says, right when you start feeling that pull, and we all know it, but I don't like that worship style so much like the other, just Jesus. Ever, like just constantly say, Jesus, make me your focus. It doesn't mean you can't have an opinion, but where is the foundation of all of this? It's Jesus Christ. But Paul is saying deeper than that, we need to have a conversation about the real work of the Spirit. Because what I love about the Corinthian church is actually if we walked into it on a Sunday, we would be blown away by the supernaturalism of the place. Demons getting cast out and people literally getting up and being healed and tongues being interpreted and prophecy and literally people who are non-Christians, someone standing up and prophesying and being convicted and saying, that's me, God is real among you. We would be like, this is incredible. And Paul comes along to this incredibly spirit-gifted church and says, but your infants... And all of the amazingness, your infants, why? Because yes, though you have God the Father's call and the foolishness of the cross understood and baptized in the Holy Spirit at conversion and using spiritual gifts, your character has not changed in four years, which means that though the Holy Spirit is gracing you, you still grieve him. Remaining the same is not an option. But John, I go to church. But John, I, I went to the Bethel worship night last week. John, I, I love going to Hillsong in New York. I, I love singing our C4 songs. I, I serve at, sing, uh, at C4. I, I run Alpha. I, I run a connect group. I teach theology. I cast out demons on Tuesdays every other week. I serve kids. And listen. I set out Port Perry. John, do you know how dedicated I am? I set up chairs for Jesus. Come on. I listen every week to Tim Keller's podcast. The Holy Spirit comes and says, yes, thank you. Actually, a genuine, like, no, thank you. I, as a leader, say, thank you, but. If you still live like Corinth, you're still a child in God's eyes. If you really want to know where you are on your walk with Jesus, like we say in our discipleship language here, if we really want to stop, and it's not a wagging, it's just a, if we want to know, if we're infants or genuine mature, he says, just ask the Holy Spirit about how worldly you are. Not how gifted you are, not how dedicated you are, not how much money you're giving, how worldly you are. The real evidence of an ongoing move of the Holy Spirit is character formation, not power. He said, well, John, what's worldliness? He says, oh, Paul would say easily, I wrote it to another church. Galatians 5.19, the acts of the sinful nature are, they're obvious. This is worldliness. Here's the list of worldliness. You know, want to know what marks Toronto and Corinth? Here it is. Sexual morality, impurity, debauchery, idolatry, witchcraft, hatred, discord, jealousy, fits of rage, selfish ambition, dissension, faction, envy, drunken, orgies, and the like. So sexual morality is the word, I've preached it before, porneia. It's where we get our modern word pornography from. It's a catch-all phrase in Greek. And just so you know, that's every sexual act that the Bible forbids. If you actually look it up in a dictionary, they'll list a bunch of things. For Moses, for Jesus, for Paul, for James, for Jude, for all the biblical writers, if you read them carefully, they have one sexual standard. It's Adam and Eve before the fall. Anything after that is called porneia, 
sexual morality. How worldly are you? How worldly are us? Right? You, you just keep going. Those three phrases, right? The first three are all sexual. And then it gets to idolatry, worshiping any other God other than the one found in Jesus Christ or lifting even good things up in front of God. Hatred is actually a really important one. It has three meanings. Hatred between rich and poor in both directions. Hatred between races and also hatred between people. Discord means strife, jealousy and envy. You want what other people have and you covet. Fits of rage, you're marked by anger, you're not self-controlled. Selfish ambition, even all the amazing things you do for Jesus in, you, in your core, they're promoting you, your ideas, your Facebook feed, you, you, you. Dissension is you're always the person at the heart of a fight. You're always the one having the conversation out in the hall at 2 o'clock, or you're the one who always having a conversation at 2 a.m. Well, you know what my thoughts are on this and that in the church and that person. Have you heard? Da, 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 da. Strife, revolt, and rebellion mark you. Factions is where we get our word heresy from. Oh, no, you don't need to believe in the authority of Scripture. No, no, you don't, you don't actually have to believe in the virgin birth. Jesus isn't the only way to heaven. That's, that's so old. Factions. Drunkenness. It's never, ever, ever been God's will that any Christian at all is buzzed, let alone lit let alone inebriated, ever, of any chemical, any sort. Orgies just means wild party living. And Paul comes along and says, look, I'm not wagging my finger trying to be really moral to make you nice. No, no, he says, don't you understand? I want you to be free. And everything that I've just listed, this worldliness that keeps making you as an infant do you know why I want you to be free of it? Number one, there's no life to it. Number two, it makes your life highly stress-filled. But here's the real issue. Ready? He says, ready? All this is going to burn. All of it. There's going to be no, none of this at all. There, there's going to be no sexual morality in heaven. There's going to be no idolatry. No one's going to be calling on demons or false powers in heaven. There's going to be no hatred. There's going to be absolutely no racism at all. There's going to be no, nothing. And he's saying, why in the world would a local church want to make its core values in for real on the ground these things when we know it is all going to burn on judgment day? This stuff doesn't count. This stuff has no life. This never helps anyone. This doesn't help your relationship with your wife or your friends or your family, let alone your relationship with God. He says, look, if you want to see from God's eyes how to be free and to walk in power and to walk in the power of the Holy Spirit and understand this is about freedom, not judgment, he says, just do this this week. Go before the Holy Spirit of Jesus Christ and say, show me how worldly I really am. And then trust him. Because he will not come to destroy, he will come to free you. Just say, here's the list. And I think maybe I'm a 23-year-old or a 45-year-old or a 65-year-old and an 80-year-old spiritually, and the Holy Spirit may come to you and say, no, you're five months old. You're two months old. You're two years old. But let, let, this is the whole point. Paul says, look, worldliness or being controlled by the Spirit is the real evidence of your walk. So come before him with joy and thanksgiving, knowing that you're called and that you're a saint and that you're saved and you have eternal life and you'll be blameless on judgment day. Come knowing that God is love and that he is good and he is a good father and he loves you and Jesus still prays for you and the Holy Spirit is with you. And come before that God, not a judgmental, angry God. Come before him and say, if I am still worldly in any way, convict me and begin to do a work in me. I can never do. You have to give me the mind of Christ and the desires I do not have and make me truly spiritual. Do you see the difference between spirituality that you buy in chapters and spirituality that is scriptural at its core? The Holy Spirit comes and says, this is the real evidence of my mark in you. Here's the last thing and then I'm done. 
gratitude and reward. In two weeks, we're going to be celebrating the 500th anniversary of the Reformation where the world changed and it's never been the same ever since. Luther, who started that great Reformation, calling the Catholic Church back into Catholicity, back into its true roots, used to teach that gratitude was the motivation for the Christian life, not anger or duty. And here's what I just want to say to you as we let this sit, because this is one of these messages we need to let percolate and really sit with us. Gratitude. If you have such a profound vision of what God has truly done for you, as we've discovered in the last three weeks, really called, elected, saved, blameless, saint, all that, and it's truly real, gratitude becomes the place where you're willing to change. And gratitude becomes a place where we're willing to sacrifice. And gratitude becomes a place where we're willing to let God in closer. Gratitude becomes the place where we go, actually, I want to be actually world, not worldly, but spiritual. In other words, Paul is saying this, live a life that will ripple into eternity. I said it before, let me say it again. When we see Jesus, the love we're going to feel for him. I mean, just, if you're a Christian, just, can you sit with this for a second? Like you're finally going to see him. You've given your whole life to him. You were baptized in his name. He came to church and heard his word and sang songs, though you had never seen him. And when, like, I can't articulate this. I wish I could. When we see Christ, oh my goodness, like, I think some of us who never dance are going to dance. <laughs> I think other people who dance are going to be struck dumb and are just going to lay down. But when we see him, we are going to want to give him so much. The love inside of us will explode. I cannot articulate it in human words. And what Paul was saying to this ancient church is this. Don't throw away everything you're going to give him in the here and now. There is nothing more amazing than to see him and to talk with him and to eat with him. So in other words, Paul says, it is better to put down and kill your wants and desires that are worldly for a greater love, for a greater plan, for a, a greater purpose. In other words, humble yourself. Give yourself to Christian unity. Give yourself to Christian spirituality as it's truly marked out in the scriptures because it will ripple forever and eternity. And when you see him, when we see him, you'll be able to give him the stuff as a gift and he'll say, well done. I'm so glad you're home. In other words, don't live a life that's gonna burn. Live a life that's gonna ripple. And I can't give you the exact formula where I go, okay, so now go home and look at point three, five, and nine. Just the whole church has to make the decision where they go, I want to give so much to Jesus when I get there. Because actually eternity is true. This is the test if you really believe our faith. That you go, okay, what is it going to cost me down here to bless him and he'll bless me up there? Does that make sense? So can we just take a moment to pray over a few things? Number one, we continually are thankful in this church, Jesus, that you are doing things we only heard about and now they're happening. And all across our church now, thousands of people wrestling with Jesus, struggling, following Jesus. Here's a few things. Number one, we pray, would you continue to guard the unity of this church? Guard it in connect groups. Guard it in our large gatherings. Guard it. Lord, like show up when we have bad thoughts and show up when we're about to misspeak. Lord, we pray that no leader would be placed in a pedestal in this church. Jesus is the head of this church. Amen, everyone? No one else. Help us also to speak 
wisely and kindly and truthfully. To love truth, not to lie, not to exaggerate in any way, shape, or form. Help our unity, we pray. Also, Holy Spirit, not out of fear, not out of judgment, because we're saved and we're in. Deeper than that, Holy Spirit, would you come and show the church how worldly it is? Me, us, so we can be free. Really, Lord, translate this beyond duty or begrudging, like something deeper. And lastly, begin to continue to give us, continue or begin to give us a vision of Jesus that is so wide and so big and so long and so high and so beautiful that we'd want to actually say no to things down here for the greater thing up there. Lord, we pray you'd continue to work this out among us. We pray this in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.